The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're in Galatians chapter 1, and we've started this book of Galatians, and Paul, this is, uh, from what I understand to be true, some guys disagree with me, but I believe this is Paul's first letter he wrote. It's uh, written after he had established these churches in Asia Minor. He heard that they were quickly departing the faith. They had believed the gospel, and then all of a sudden, some Judaizers had gone up from Jerusalem up into Galatia, and they were teaching a gospel contrary to the one Paul gave them. And what these Judaizers were basically doing, we're going to find out later in the letter, is they were adding the law of Moses to the gospel of Christ. They were either saying that um, this teaching of the gospel is good, but if you want to be a real spiritual Christian... You also have to keep the Jewish Sabbath days and holy days, and you have to not eat uh, certain meats. You have to keep the Jewish dietary restrictions. You have to honor these things if you really want to be spiritual. If you really want to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to not only believe the gospel, but you also have to obey all of the Old Testament Mosaic law. That's what I take it to be. The problem was, and what that was basically doing was adding works to grace. Paul's going to mention that later on. If you were saved by grace, why are you now trying to live by works, he says. And Paul, if we were to go over and read the book of Colossians chapter 1, we heard chapter 2 today, but if we were to read chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 1, you would... In fact, in all of, almost all of his letters, he, he starts off with a, a greeting, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, or something like that. And then he gives a thanksgiving for the church he's writing to. The book of Ephesians, for example, if you turn over there to Ephesians chapter 1 real quick. In the Greek, he has one sentence that runs from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. It's one sentence with a bunch of participial phrases and clauses that are attached to this one sentence. And what he's doing is he is praising God and thanking the Lord for the work done in the church of Ephesians. And I just want to read it to you. It's one of my favorite passages. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, 
When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's a prayer, a praise to God for what God had done in the lives of the Ephesians. And that's kind of typical of Paul in his letters. Now, when we turn back over to Galatians, when we turn back over to Galatians chapter 1, he says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Then you expect this thanksgiving because that's Paul's sort of habit. But what does he say? I am astonished. I'm astonished. He's not happy. He is upset about what's going on. Here he doesn't even stop to say a few kind words about the church in Galatia. Instead, he immediately rebukes them. And perhaps it was because he wrote it right on the spot when he heard the news. He had started this church. He had gone around in his uh, missionary journey through Asia Minor. He had come back to home base in Antioch. Perhaps he hears this word, this report that they're already abandoning this gospel. And so let's read verses 6 to 10 together. That's what I'm going to cover this morning. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Wow. Wow. I would not want to receive that letter. That's like in the, the Harry Potter movies when the kid opens the letter and it starts screaming at him because he'd gotten in trouble at school. It's like you open this letter and all of a sudden you're being rebuked. I'm astonished, he says. And there was a crisis going on in Galatia. We see it in verses 6 and 7. The first thing we see is their desertion from God. Paul is amazed over their spiritual apostasy. His jaw was dropped open, as it were, and he's full of righteous indignation. He's facing this crisis He heard the word that some Judaizers were teaching that Galatians needed to add the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see later in the book, they were adding works to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They were adding works to it. This is what Martin Luther came to see at the start of the Reformation. He was... Tortured. If you've ever uh, read a biography of him or seen the movie Luther that's done, you see he had no rest, he had no peace in his soul because he was trying to earn his salvation. He was the, as he says, if I was, I was the monk of monks, I, I, if, if I could have earned salvation by monkery, I would have, he said. 
He was in the Augustinian order, which was one of the most severe ascetic orders in the Roman Catholic Church at the time, in the 16th century, late 15th uh, century, and he had no peace. He had no rest. His soul had no foundation upon which he could have hope and peace. And then he begins to read the book of Galatians, and a light goes on that this gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he begins to see this system of indulgences that had, had grown up and risen up that was basically buying your relative's way into heaven in order to fund the building of the um, Sistine Chapel, yeah. And he looked at it and he couldn't believe it and so he wrote his 95 theses. And he wasn't trying to leave the church at the time. He was just posting up for debate much like a forum board on the internet today. He posts up his 95 theses and says, let's talk about these things. Let's see if the scripture really does teach these things. Little did he know what was going to happen. And the Protestant Reformation kicks off. And what they became known for were these five solas. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. And then Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. These five solas that were at the heart of the Reformation. And what their motive was, their goal was, was to recover this gospel that had been lost, it had been blurred and marred, but not completely forgotten because the Lord Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Paul, he's writing, dealing with the same kind of problem. They hadn't been Christians for very long and they were already turning away from the gospel He says in verse 6, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him, him who called you the Father, and you're deserting the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word to desert, it was used in the military for traitors and turncoats. That's a harsh word. He says you're a traitor to the gospel. You're deserting the gospel. It was used in religious context for conversion from one religion or philosophy to another. You've, you've changed your thinking. You've abandoned Christianity and you've gone on to another religion or philosophy. Another gospel, which he says is really no gospel at all. It's really not good news. In other words, you're apostatizing. You're deserting the one who called you. See, and I think this is important to remember. When we're tempted to abandon the gospel, when we're tempted to add something to the gospel for our salvation, we're not just changing a teaching. We are abandoning a person. He says, you're deserting the one who called you, God the Father. You're deserting him. You're turning your back on him. You're a traitor to the Father. You're offending a person. God the Father throughout the book of Galatians is the one who calls. Chapter 1 is verse 15. He who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. So we know the one who calls is the Father because he revealed the son in Paul. And then over in chapter 5, verse 8 of Galatians, he uses 
this word call again. He says in verse 7, you were running well, Galatians. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says, you were called, but this, this teaching that you're hearing, this is not from the one who calls you. It's another gospel. You're abandoning him. In other letters, if you turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. You know this verse. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, who is this one who is doing all these things? Back in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The one who's doing all these things is God the Father. He's the one who predestines. He's the one who calls. He's the one who justifies. He's the one who glorifies. And he does it through the Son, and he does it by the Spirit. The Father's the one who calls over in 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I wanted to bring up this verse because we don't want to say that the law is bad or the law is evil. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But Paul writes to Timothy chapter, um, actually 2 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter, I, I did tell you 2 Timothy, I was in 1 Timothy, chapter 1 verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We're not saved by works, but by grace, by the one who called us, who's placed us into Christ. And that's why back in Galatians, Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you're abandoning the one who calls you and you're, you're deserting this one who calls you, verse 6, and he's called you in the grace of Christ. This means the Father's calling is in the sphere of grace. It's the, me, it's the means of grace that's found in Christ. It's all of grace apart from works. We could never earn the Father's favor. That's one of the worst ways to live, isn't it? Have you ever found yourself getting in the mindset where you think that you need to earn the Father's favor by your actions? Sometimes it sounds like this. Well, I would go to church, but I need to clean myself up first. I need to get my act together. I need to take care of a few things before I come back to church. Well, what is the motive behind that? Well, if that's a genuine statement, the motive behind it is guilt. I feel like I need to do something, change something in my life before I can be fit for the presence of God because I know God is where God meets with his people at church and I don't really want to be in his presence because I got to change some things. That's living by works. 
thinking you have to earn the Father's favor by what you do. Other ways. I have my list of what a good Christian is. They're the ones who read their Bible and pray and go to church and serve, and they don't do certain things. They don't go certain places. They don't participate in certain activities. And as long as I hit that list, then God is happy with me. It's living by works. Because what happens when you don't hit the list? What happens when you don't measure up? Paul says this calling is in the grace of Christ. It's all of grace and apart from works. You know what this means? This means when God calls, he calls the undeserving. That's really good news. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know we're undeserving. We know that we don't deserve the grace of God. We know we don't deserve his mercy. And so it says here that he calls by grace, all of grace, in Christ, apart from works, it means he's calling real sinners with real problems and real brokenness. And he really changes them. And he really does a work in them, and he really brings them into his family, and he really draws them near so that they can now approach him as a father. That's really good news. This magnifies his love. This is what the Father has done in us. This is what we sing about. And Satan would love to do nothing better as we sang. Satan would do not, like to do nothing better than accuse us and tell us we got to clean ourselves up. Look at this. Look at this verse right here. Satan would love to do nothing better than to accuse us And tell us, look at all the sin that remains in your life. Look at all of the things that you still fail at. We know how you talk when you're apart from people of God. Right? Satan says, I know what you say when you're at work. And your foul mouth. And your bad humor. I know how angry you get with your children when nobody's looking. Oh sure, you treat them nice and give them hugs in public. I know how you talk to your wife. I know the thoughts you have against your husband. The murmuring and complaining. You could never be accepted by God. God really doesn't love you the way you think he does or the way you wish he would because this gospel, it's really too good to be true. And this is what the cross tells us. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cried. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cried. Don't let that ransom sinner die. That is good news. That is news I need to hear this morning. It magnifies the Father's love. That's what Paul is so astonished at. How could you abandon this gospel? And then he says, it's really not good news at all. He says, I'm so astonished that you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Not that there is another one. What does he mean by that? Well, the word gospel, euangelizo, it means good news. 
you're abandoning the good news, the message about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, guess what? The supposed good news of the Judaizers is really not good news at all. Here's why. If you try to live by works, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to get proud because you're going to just simply limit it to externals and think you've arrived. I keep all these laws. You're the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. I have never broken one of your laws, Father, and you've never given me a goat. Or, if you're honest with yourself and you try to live by works, you despair because you never measure up. (laughs) Sinclair Ferguson, uh, Paul, Lee, and I have been going through this book all summer uh, called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Excellent book. I think it's the best book I've read in the last couple years. It's really, really good. And um, he recounts a portion of Pilgrim's Progress in there, and I wanted to share this with you. John Bunyan's description as the Christian, the main character, uh, he meets Faithful and he's talking to Faithful, and they're recounting their travels on the road. And Faithful is, is talking about when he met Adam, the first Adam on the road. He called him a very aged man, Adam the first. And Adam invites Faithful to stay in the town of Deceit. And Adam offers him a ton of pleasures including marriage to his three daughters. So Christian says to Faithful, what was your response? And Faithful, here's what he says, why at first I found myself somewhat inclinable to go with the man. I thought he spoke very fair. But looking in his forehead as I talked to him, I saw there written, put off the old man with his deeds. And so Faithful runs away and he makes his escape from Adam. I felt him give me such a deadly twitch back that I thought he had pulled part of me after himself. And this made me cry out, oh, wretched man. But I went on my way up the hill. Well, then as he's going up the hill, halfway up, he meets Moses. He runs into Moses. Actually, Moses chases him down. Here's, the, here's what Faithful says. I look behind and I saw one coming after me swift as the wind. And so he overtook me just about the place where the settle stands. And as soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow. For down he knocked me and he laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him, wherefore he served me so. Remember, he wrote this in the (laughs) uh, 17th century. Wherefore he served me so. Why'd you hit me? And he said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast, and he beat me down backwards, so I lay at his foot as dead as before. So when I came to myself again, I cried for mercy, but he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again, and he had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him forbear. So he describes Adam the first, the first Adam, the old man. And he says, man, this guy was in the town of deceit. He tried to grab me, tried to get me to live with him and even marry his three daughters and have a life in the town of deceit. But I saw that I needed to put off the old man and so I continued on the hill. But then Moses chased me down and he beat me half to death. And I asked him, please show me mercy. And Moses says, I don't even know what mercy is. And he beat him down and he beat him down and he was gonna put an end to him. And then one walks by and says, hold on, hold on. And so Christian says, well, who is this guy? What made Moses stop? And Faithful says this, 
I did not know him at first, but as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and in his side. And then I concluded that he was our Lord, and so I I went up the hill. And then Christian goes, aha. And then he explains, that man that overtook you, he was Moses. And he spares none. He neither knows how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. And faithful comments, I know it very well. It was not the first time he had met with me. (laughs) You see, the law cannot save. The law can only condemn The law leads to bondage. We can never get into the law's good graces because the law contains no mercy. It's powerless to pardon. Our only hope is to have, like faithful, a clear sight of the nail scars in the hands of Jesus Christ. For while we were weak, while we were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what the gospel teaches. Only Christ can deliver from bondage. Only grace can come in Christ. And God's grace to us is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Paul is so worked up. He says, you're abandoning the Father, the one who gave his Son, who is full of grace, who's full of mercy. You're turning from him like a traitor. And you're going after another gospel, which is no gospel. And that gospel will never save, it will never deliver, it will only put you in bondage. And and if you're like me, you've tried to live by works from time to time. It's our default switch, isn't it? It's kind of like it just, we wake up one morning and the switch is flipped back to, the. it's not like the breakers tripped, maybe it's like the breakers tripped, I don't know, but I'm not an electrician, maybe that's not a good illustration. But it's just, it flips back to that legalism, and then we start being miserable in our Christian life because we know we're not living up to God's standard and we try to remedy the situation by changing the way we live rather than returning to Christ and reminding ourselves of who we are and living out of who we are. Christ is the one who delivers from bondage. And so Paul then, he goes on to say... This crisis in Galatia, verses 6 and 7, which is desertion from God. That's the first thing it is. If you want the... the, And it's devotion to a false gospel. Desertion from God and devotion to a false gospel. Now this, verses 7 through 9, we see what this counterfeit gospel is. It's anathema. This counterfeit gospel is anathema. Verse 7, we see the practice of the agitators. Uh, These ones in verse 7 who he says are trying to trouble you. These troublers, agitators. We see their practice in verse 7. We see their goal in verse 7. And we see the indictment against them in verses 8 and 9 if you want the outline of where I'm going with this. Their practice. Verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. These false teachers are troubling the Galatians in the sense of shaking their allegiance to Christ. They're causing great trouble. They're agitators. And they're shaking the allegiance that these Galatians have to Christ. Their intention is to confuse and mislead them away from the true gospel. And in this verse, the, when it says they're troubling them, it's in the present tense. It's an ongoing, continuous action. Perhaps they're still in the church when Paul wrote. 
And he doesn't know their names, but the people could look around and say, oh, we know exactly who the troublers are. And Paul is intending to combat their teaching. The true gospel is liberating, while this counterfeit gospel is bondage. Uh, As I said, Sinclair Ferguson in this book, The Whole Christ, I wanted to read you a a quote from it. Because remember this, what these Judaizers were doing was trying to add the law of Moses to the gospel of Christ in order to earn God's favor and approval. And Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. He says, in terms of the marriage metaphor Paul uses in Romans 7, 1 through 6, The old marriage to the law is finished for us. Yet many in the second marriage to Christ may still be haunted by the memory of the former husband. What a great picture that is. We're no longer married to our sin and we're no longer married to the law. We're now married to Christ. But yet we still, some of us, many of us, are haunted by the memory of the former husband. And then Sinclair Ferguson writes, there's only one, mem- well, one remedy. There's one remedy to live in the awareness that the new husband abounds in more grace than the abusive husband did in condemnation. It is this that will produce what Thomas Chalmers famously described as the expulsive power of a new affection. This is gospel Christology, gospel theology, and gospel psychology too. Ferguson writes. What a picture. If you know people who've been in an abusive marriage or, or you've been in an abusive marriage, you know how hard it is to, to put aside those old thoughts. And, and if, if you've uh, been, know someone who's been remarried after they were in an abusive marriage, or, or perhaps yourself, you've been in that situation you know that the remedy is to remind yourself that, that this new husband is not like the old husband. And that's what Ferguson is saying. This new husband of Christ is not like the abusive, condemning husband of the law. And the remedy is to say that the new husband abounds in more grace than the abusive husband did in condemnation. That's why the Lord Jesus in Pilgrim's Progress could come by and tell Moses, stop. You can't beat him to death because I have the nail scars in my hands. And that sin is forgiven. It's under the blood of Christ, as we heard in Colossians 2 when Frank read it. The handwriting of requirements that were against us have been removed, having been taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So that's the practice. They're, these agitators, these troublers were trying to confuse and mislead the Galatians away from the true gospel. Their goal is at the end of verse 7. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that word distort, distort they want to alter, change, they want to pervert the gospel of grace. It indicates a complete reversal, a change of direction. Paul experienced this freedom from the law personally. Think about his own experience. He was a, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under the feet of Gamal- Gamaliel. He was the up-and-comer in the Jewish world, going to be the premier scholar of the next generation. 
And he tried to stamp out the church of God in his zeal for the law of Moses. And then he receives freedom from it in the gospel. And he is passionate that his converts don't fall under the same yoke of slavery. They're talking about the gospel of Christ. These Judaizers want to pervert it by adding something in the hearer's mind that sounds reasonable. Why was this so reasonable to the Galatians? The reason, I think, is because Paul was a Jew. Jesus Christ was a Jew. The gospel comes to the Galatians, who are Gentiles, from a Jewish origin. And so when these Judaizers come up and they say, yeah, you need to believe the gospel about Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, who was crucified in Jerusalem, who is the answer to all of the Old Testament promises, well, then it sounds reasonable to say, oh, if you want to be spiritual, you also have to keep the Old Testament law. And Paul says, it's another gospel. What does it look like for us today? What are some of the dangers today, if I could just be a little bit pastoral here? Here's what I think people do today who take the gospel of Christ and they try to add something to it that sounds reasonable. Today, it's the gospel of material prosperity. God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and happy. And so it's the gospel plus whatever makes you wealthy and healthy and happy. For some, it's you give in faith to their ministry Others, others, it's the gospel of family values. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ plus having family values. I mean, we're not against family values. We want our families to have values and we want our children and grandchildren to grow up and, and, and have a desire for Christ. But when we make family values a part of what it means to earn God's favor... Man, look at how my kids turned out. I'm doing things right, and they're doing all these things wrong because I've done A, B, C, X, Y, Z. I'm going to name some things. I probably shouldn't get in your business too much. Another one is the gospel of self-help. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ plus this message of you just need to believe in yourself more. You need to have the power of positive thinking. The gospel of self-help. The problem is you don't love yourself enough. You don't esteem yourself enough. And you need to esteem yourself more and love yourself more. Oh yeah, the gospel's good, but really if you want to be healed, if you want to be delivered, you you need to really believe that you can achieve all of your dreams and visualize it and make it happen. For others, it's the gospel of religious tradition. It's the gospel plus the way we've always done it. I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. For others, it's the gospel of morality. It's the gospel plus whatever this level of morality is. Well, I've never committed that sin. I'm not like those people because I've never done that. 
there are many brands of this gospel of works. And we're tempted. I, I tell you what, um, social media has just increased the temptation exponentially to find your identity in something other than Christ, to add something to the gospel. One of these. Think about it, moms. You are under assault from social media, from what you feed your children, to how you raise them, to how you educate them, to what you expose them to, to where you let them go. You can never do it right. And you're tempted to think that, that if you're a good Christian, you have to do it this way. It's the gospel plus this. Well, that's, that's what Paul's against. Martin Luther said, There's a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the doctrine of faith and may substitute for it the doctrines of works and human traditions. It's very necessary, therefore, that this doctrine of faith be continually read and heard in public. We need to remind ourselves about this over and over and over again. The most dangerous teachers are those who preach a different Christ, but they still call him Jesus. And so what is Paul's indictment, verses 8 and 9? He repeats himself. Paul tries to imagine a situation in which someone might suppose it was okay to believe a different gospel. What if Paul came back and preached a different one? What if an angel burst forth out of heaven and preached a different gospel? Is that okay? Paul ultimately says it is the message, not the messenger that matters. It's the message. Verse Eight, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What does he mean by that? He's not praying to God to say, that guy's a false teacher or they're believing a different gospel. God, would you curse them and kill them and send them to hell? That's not what Paul's doing here. What he's saying is if someone preaches a message other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're still under the curse of the law, and their end is still destruction by God. He's not trying to persuade God in his prayer. He's trying to convince the Galatians to not turn to this gospel. He's telling them it's a dead-end road. Don't go down there. And so then he says in verse 10, here's my motive, he says. This is his motive for genuine gospel ministry. He asks a couple questions, verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And it goes right back to what he was saying. He wasn't trying to persuade God to curse these false teachers. He's trying to persuade the Galatians not to accept this false gospel. Am I trying to seek the approval of man or God? And the answer to that question would be, he's trying to seek the approval of God by, the next question, not pleasing men, persuading men. Am I trying to please men? No. He's not trying to please men. He's trying to persuade men. And so his conclusion in verse 10, am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What he basically says is, I please God by persuading men rather than seeking to please men by changing the message. 
He's trying to please God by being a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaiming the true gospel about him. Uh, One last uh, little excerpt from Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ in closing. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson speaks of the story of the prodigal son. And he says it could be called the parable of the free grace savior. Or it could be called the parable of the ingraced antinomian. That would be the younger son. Or it could be called the parable of the disgraced legalist, uh, the older son. Because the younger son, when he comes to his senses and he thinks, oh, the servants in my father's house have it better than me. And he goes back to the father and the father runs and meets him. And, why, and, and, and lifts his head and, and the son says, father, I don't deserve to be one of your sons. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son was living out of a wrong understanding of the father's love and grace. You see, that's a, that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. If we were to come back to God and say, I don't deserve to be one of your sons, just treat me as one of your hired servants, we wouldn't be understanding the gospel. We would be trying to add works to it. We would think that something we do or don't do earns or disearns God's approval and favor as our father. And so to the younger son, the response of the father in the, in the prodigal in the parable is bring out a robe and bring out a ring and let's have a party. What's he saying? He's saying to the younger son, you're accepted as you are. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to serve penance for a number of years as one of my servants before you get back into my favor and can be a son. No, my son was lost and has come home again. Let's have a party. And then the older brother gets angry. And the older brother says to his father, after he has his pity party, he leaves. He goes outside. The father goes out to him. And the, young, the older brother says to the father, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So the older brother, who's the legalist, says, I've been doing all these things right. But he misunderstands the father's grace and the father's mercy. See, he wants to shame his father into giving him a party and a goat. But what does the father respond to the older brother? (laughs) To the older brother, he says, Everything that is mine, it's already yours. He could have had a goat at any time he wanted because everything the father has is at the older son's disposal. The older son misunderstood the heart of the father as well. And here's where Ferguson concludes. He says the punchline comes at the end. That being the case, the alarming message message here in the the story of the prodigal Uh, Son is that the spirit of the elder brother, the legalist, is more likely to be found near the father's house than in the pig farm, or in concrete terms, in the congregation among the faithful. And sometimes, only sometimes, he says, it appears in the pulpit and in the heart of the pastor. Then it becomes dangerously infectious, this gospel of legalism. You see, this is why we desire to preach a gospel of grace alone 
by faith alone in Christ alone, a free justification from God that is apart from works outside of us. This is work done by Christ. He finished the work, and it's imputed to us. It's, it's put on our account. We're declared justified and righteous because of the finished work of Christ, plus nothing else. And we receive it by faith. Faith is the conduit by which we receive this justification in Christ, this identity in Christ, this new standing before God the Father. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in a person in Christ. And we don't ever want to tire of hearing that. We don't ever want to stop believing that and preaching that and telling it to our hearts. Because those of us who are regular church attenders, as Sinclair Ferguson said, this temptation to legalism is closest to home. More often to be found in the congregation than in the pig farm. Father, we come to you and we're grateful for this message. This is really good news. You really do love us. You really do save the undeserving. And it's all of grace. That's why we come to the table. I ask, Father, that you would remind us over and over again of the good news of Christ. Apply it to our hearts. That you would deliver us from Uh, any form of legalism that we're tempted to believe, any type of trying to add works to our salvation. We want to live out of who we are in Christ and motivated by that and nothing else. Do this work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.